easier said than done, but we need to rework the FDA from the ground up or just take the take your mental health out of the FDA and have a psychologically based regulatory system. Because, I mean, they're the, on the medication side, they're medications. And so we, you know, there's there's value in the government keeping the snake oil out of the system and and making sure people aren't overdosed and all of that. But yeah, how is it, how are we going to go forward? It's a challenge. Yeah, I would like to see us rework uh, the diagnostic system and make it far more etiographic and process oriented. In this interview, I'm joined by Professor Stephen Hayes and Professor Matthew Johnson. Although they work in widely different fields, with Matt being a leading researcher in psychedelics at John Hopkins, and Steve being the co-developer of acceptance and commitment therapy, both have reached similar conclusions about the psychological processes underneath mental health and well-being. So I thought it might be interesting to bring them together for this conversation. You'll learn how a behaviorist perspective has been advantageous for both Matt and Steve in their research, how and why psychedelics may promote psychological flexibility, Steve's and Matt's thoughts on the origins of spirituality, their views on consciousness and the hard problem, and more. You can follow Matt on X at drug underscore researcher and learn more about Stephen's work by going to stephenchays.com. You can also check out the PsychFlex app that was mentioned during this episode by visiting psychflex.com. Okay, everybody, welcome to the show. I'm joined here by Dr. Matthew Johnson and Professor Stephen Hayes. Um, we're going to be discussing uh, psychedelics and psychological flexibility today. And it's really interesting because Matt and Steve both come from a behaviorist background and they've arrived at what I would describe as maybe a similar understanding of the core underlying processes that lead to psychological flourishing. And whenever, whenever these processes go wrong, they also lead to a lot of suffering. So although you guys might use very different language to describe these these processes and these mechanisms, um, why why do you think, first of all, that it's important to understand these these mechanisms? And is it a coincidence that you both come from a behaviorist background? And let's start with Matt here. Sure, sure. Um, well, I guess uh, in terms of the you know the you know language, I, I think uh, in terms of the the concepts, the constructs that we use, I I think it's kind of important to. I view these all as, all as different tools and every tool has its advantages and disadvantages or different lenses through which to see the world. And there's no perfect lens. I mean, ultimately, you know, the model is never the same as ground truth. So it's all a matter about like, you know, your usefulness of a lens or a tool in a particular situation. And so I think the, the psychedelic area for me um, has really been this enigma. It, it, it's sort of a, uh, it it really calls for you know, these explanations. I think from a variety of perspectives, the people what we're seeing so far in the field is that sometimes, surprisingly often, people can um, show large changes in their life, and and not always, but in, in treating a number of of disorders. And how do you explain that, especially because this doesn't operate like typical medica psychiatric medications where you, you know, you're reducing symptoms. So if it works, you keep taking it every day for 
you know, uh, semi-permanently or permanently and keep knocking those symptoms down. So this is very different where people receive one, two or three sessions. And then oftentimes we're seeing changes months or sometimes years later. And so how do you explain that? And so there are many perspectives. I mean, many perspectives will use stuff that may you know, tend to edge or be completely in the kind of the, you might call the woo language territory, you know, just, you know, supernatural explanations, um, or just very loose, you know, sort of, I don't know, perhaps from a, what you could call a humanistic psychology or, or even a little further out transpersonal psychology perspective. Uh, um, you know, you could talk about the, you know, uh, in, uh priorities in life, uh, uh, you know, from a, perhaps a, a humanistic perspective or, um, uh, 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 core values in people um, coming to the fore, things like this. Um, but, you know, I, I find myself often using that behavioral lens as sort of what I view as kind of a, a, a primary lens. It's not the only lens, but um, everything I see is consistent with that. It's not that it, it's operating this way or that way. Everything has to be or can be potentially behaviorally understood. And sometimes the, you know, other uh, levels of analysis are, are kind of easier to describe a concept, but um, you know, I, I, I think of these, if someone has changed their behavior in a big way, that's because of an experience that's by definition learning from my perspective. So I think we're, you know, almost nothing in the field. The field is basically focused on um, demonstrating, finding, testing some of these changes. And we haven't, we still haven't gotten to the meat of how these, how this therapy works. So that's, yeah, that's my answer to your, your question. What, what draws my interest? Awesome. Thank you, Matt. Yeah, I think um, in a way there's uh, well, there's definitely a parallel in terms of how we think that you, you think of language as a tool when you sort of reflect on your own behavior and that's part of the behavioral tradition is to think of your own act of knowing as a scientist as itself behavior and so you apply the same principles that you apply to others to yourself and you know we, the the context determines which ways of speaking are, are most useful depending on what and, and your goals what are you trying to accomplish um in a way it just as uh, the psychedelic experience sort of stretches our, our our ability to describe what's going on and pulls for leaping ahead rather than a kind of a bottom-up progressive uh, you know kind of allowing your terms to become uh, grounded and, and expand in their scope uh, people leap forward and they they do the best they can uh, but then it's really hard to create a progressive science that way i mean it, it, it's it's a way of speaking that people would uh, be able to connect to quite easily frankly without a lot of scientific training or in some areas where you jump levels of analysis and you simply talk about the underlying neurobiology period then the story and then you, you really don't have a way of connecting with the experiences of people you know my own work is in clinical psychology and especially it's driven by more transformational events. I've talked about some of my own experiences and in, in YouTube TEDx talks and so forth. 
And we need a, a way of speaking that does that. You know, the 40-year journey I've been on of trying to figure out, well, what is language and cognition and perspective taking and sense of self and chosen values and all that? How can you understand those? You can't just stay, in my opinion, with principles that are drawn from non-human animals, period, end of story. And we've tried to find a way to do that. And um, I, th I think with some reasonable success, just based on the the breadth of application of things like acceptance and commitment therapy or training act in either case. And so um, the psychedelic issue is a kind of an interesting preparation where uh, those bottom-up concepts to try to go from the most basic learning phenomena all the way up to a sense of self, consciousness, especially the hard problem of consciousness, being able to uh, what I think Matt calls phenomenal uh, consciousness is uh, is a challenge for psychology, but it, it's a worthy one. I mean, we really want high precision, high scope, you know, tight principles that are linked to experimentation and are not just loose metaphors and so forth to be able to walk all the way up into the highest levels of human experience and uh, the challenge, the transformational kind of nature of some of the psychedelic-assisted uh, therapy, or just psychedelics, period, end of story, uh, but sometimes not in good ways. I'm a child of the 60s and 70s. I saw the train wreck version of that. Um, uh, maybe we'll get into that. Is one that if you can overcome that, if you can deal with that in a sophisticated way, you're really showing that you've you've got an avenue in to human experience that's worth exploring. So it's kind of a natural preparation for, okay, explain this dude. You know, that's a, a kind of a cool one. And it's one that interests me most about the, the modern version of what we're doing in psychedelics. Uh, the first version was also interesting, but, uh, but, you know, didn't wear well in terms of uh, how it was handled uh, including by psychologists uh, who drove. I mean, Tim Leary was a psychologist, and so were uh, most of the people who were, you know, Baba Ramdas, the whole crew. Um, so let's let's do it a little differently, and this time with a, a way that allows it to open up new territories that apply not just to psychedelic experience, but to human experience more generally. Awesome. That, thank you. Sorry, Mark, okay. go ahead. I was going to say that that really rings true to me, this idea that um, the psychedelic area is one that sort of for, it's, it's an interesting challenge, because how can you try to explain this thing and, and stay grounded? And I, I do see examples where I call it falling into the, playing the guru role or, or starting to use language loosely, like so you mentioned phenomenal consciousness. Uh, you know, I think my my behavioral roots are a value in the sense they they uh it, it, i got a, a a good or decent training in philosophy of science in the sense that you know, like be careful with the words you use what do they mean um uh what what is a, a construct and how do you know this is a, you know um uh uh beware of the jingle jangle phenomenon where the same word can mean different things or or vice versa and, and so um you know consciousness you know we use one word for things that are really quite 
different. So you mentioned the hard problem, which is about, you could call it phenomenal consciousness. Basically the, this question is like, you know, can you explain how do you want to explain how or why there is any subjective experience at all, which is a different question than uh, the self-concept. You know, I always think you could train a, you know, program a computer or a robot to act in a self-referential way. That has nothing to do with whether there's an experience of any type there. There may or may not be. And that's, you know, for, unfortunately, so, you know, at the time, it seemed to still a philosophical question, the hard problem. It remained very open that one day we could get some sort of hold on addressing that question. But yeah, using it's an area that's challenging because I think we can, the psychedelic area, because we could, uh, all of these challenges, such as using hand wavy terms to describe <laughs> and think we've we've come upon an explanation where it's really just a description and sometimes not even a, a good description and uh and and we can kind of lose our grounding and then there's also challenges i find with the just the idea of phenomenology the idea that well we can describe people's experiences and we can even have our own personal beliefs about our best guesses as a as a person about some of these philosophical questions that unfortunately we just don't have any empirical evidence for but that's different than ground truth so if, if people believe for example that they have a uh, an experience of of, of, a, of a deity or if they believe they have an insight into the i mean you see a lot you know the origins of the universe the nature of reality the the big bang other dimensions you know it's it it is science to describe what experiences under particular conditions with x dose of x compound you know you know what people are saying and to categorize that and, and and what have you that's completely divorced from whether there's any truth to what they're saying in terms of a description of 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 reality base reality so it's an interesting area because it just i find that it requires some there's this ever there's this impulse to always lift you off your feet to <laughs> unroot you <laughs> scientifically and it's going to take a lot of folks um with some you know decent scientific grounding to keep this field focused and moving forward and if i can just uh, add to that uh, uh, a little bit in a way it's been the challenge of psychology behavioral science period end of story uh, because there's all these different models but if you're gonna you know get the kind of scope to your concepts you're gonna have to start with the basics and uh you know the the ones that do that tend to focus on things like the evolutionary history of the organism just biologically but not just that in terms of culture and behavior and so forth and to be able to you know, walk that thing up. So you really want to be able to have, have pro, uh, uh, principles and processes and methods of look at them that start with very simple, simple is a little dangerous, but non-human uh, uh, organisms, how do they behave, walk up into more and more complexity, more and more complexity. And in the history of psychology, there's some folks who got kind of uh, impatient with that. I mean, I was a Maslow fan uh, before I was a Skinner fan, uh, you know, as a high school student, what drew me into psychology, peak experiences and things of that kind. 
And, and he was a wonderful psychologist, but he was also convinced that you couldn't do what I just said, that you had to have a very different model of science in order to be able to deal with human experience at the level that he wanted to deal with it. And that was not uncommon. I think the humanistic folks more generally made uh, uh, made that choice, but it meant now there's a discontinuity. And it would be very much just like you're trying to explain how our why is our brain the way the way it is? If you said, "Oh, it's completely different from the hominins, from the you know," and we're not going to walk it out evolutionarily, well, then there's a gap. What, what are you going to say? Then? And then magic happened. You can kind of do that clinically and psychologically, and still get some things done. You you can have wonderful humanistic ways of reaching people. One of the things, though, that is cool about where we are right now, I think is that when people hear behavioral psychology and some are probably already about to tune out, you know, oh my God, we're going to, you know, we're going to hear that we're robots, we're rats. And this, this kind of idea is that it's mechanistic and it really invalidates. And you say, well, that's just this and that's just that. And you throw away complex questions and don't take them seriously. And some of that's on the behavioral tradition. Frankly, there are voices that sound like that. Uh, hopefully not the voices that are in this session. But if you can pull it off, if you can walk it out, well, then now you've done something that's really cool. And if I could say, just as a way of reconnecting with these two parallel things, um, the very first article that I wrote uh, after my, as I call it, my night on the carpet, when I had this really um, important experience in my life, uh, just dealing with my own panic disorder, was uh, an article called Making Sense of Spirituality. And it was published in the journal Behaviorism. And it walked through, because here's this concept of mind, body, you know, spiritual versus natural. I mean, how can you get farther away from a natural science approach than, than, to, than to be talking about spirituality? And yet, almost everybody has spiritual experiences, if you word the questions properly. And by the way, they're quite close in some interesting ways to psychedelic experiences. And you as a scientist have to, in my opinion, have to deal with that. You can't just say, oh, that's woo-woo. No, it's human behavior. It's human experience. You have to walk it out. And in that article, I was trying to, you know, it lays out the beginnings of, of what I was, end up trying to do with the theory of cognition and with, uh, you know, its clinical extension. And the point was, is that it's sort of meta point is that when you take experiences seriously all the way up to things like spirituality, but you approach them in a way that allows them to have special properties and you don't just dismiss them or reduce them or minimize them, you take them seriously in their own terms, that's a kind of a, uh, a, kind of a crucible that it puts this basic language through of how can you walk up these terms that are applied in simpler circumstances to deal with something even that complex. And if you fail the test, well, then push the reset button and work on your basic concepts more. And so here we got a new test, and it's really similar, I think, in many ways of, okay, we're going to look at psychedelic experience seriously, uh, in part because the data that it's and it said it back in the 60s and 70s, but it got overwhelmed with people being afraid of uh, and all the legal restrictions and so forth. And so really important leads weren't followed. 
what do you have to say even about that? And I, I think we can say a lot about that uh, without minimizing and without reducing, but simply by taking it seriously, but using concepts that have proven their utility in basic behavioral preparations and then expanding what's needed to sort of climb up to that level of complexity. So I'm interested in seeing where we go with this conversation. And what you just uh, described, Stephen, really reminds me of something that I I often find myself thinking about in science uh, is that there are different levels of analysis. So for and, and there are what appear to be emergent properties. Uh, so the science of chemistry and the science of physics, all of chemistry is completely based on physics. But if you were to use just the laws of physics to explain, you would be unable to. And it's sort of perhaps an open question whether even the most intelligent system would be able to explain all of those properties at the level of, I mean, maybe it's possible at the level of physics, and then you can go up to another level of biology. And so by analogy, the computer, you know, you think you know, you're dealing with the graphical user interface and the icons, but underlying that is some language that's programmed that, underlying that is you know, uh, the machine language, which is ones and zeros, but it's not even ones and zeros. It's open and closed circuits. And so now, you know, programming a, a simple thing that I could program using ones and zeros, billions, I don't know, like, you know, like it's, it's just, you just can't do it. And, and, and there are relationships, properties that become apparent once you kind of build on those complex systems and you simply can't, you know, the lower level analysis isn't the tool that you can use to, uh, to get a whole lot done at that higher level, but everything at that higher level is not discrete. You know, it's not this great separation. It has to completely be built on that lower level. Just, you know, and the point you make about evolutionary history, you know, it, it makes that so well, because obviously whatever, we have that's unique to humans and what that mammals have that, you know, the other, you know, others, you know, or that primates have that other mammals don't have. And then, you know, going on, on, on further has to have been built on <laughs> those common ancestors and simpler, relatively speaking, simpler systems. And so it just doesn't come out of nowhere. So, you know, building those bridges across those levels of analysis or, or a whole lot of interesting action is that, Okay, awesome. Um, so I'm aware that some of the early research done with psychedelic therapy um, is done, they found that acceptance and commitment therapy is particularly effective used in conjunction with it. Um, so Steve, could you maybe give us just a the, the, the big picture overview of what psych psychological flexibility is? And then maybe we can discuss um, what is it about psychedelics that might be helping to facilitate this in people? Yeah, and I think I'd like to do it in a, in a way that even goes beyond the act work, act work because we've been looking recently at uh, what are the processes of change in uh, uh, mental health, behavioral health, and uh, psychological flexibility is at the core of the entire world's literature on how change happens. So if you just expand the language a little bit, so use a slightly expanded language that doesn't sound too acty. And that way you don't have to feel as though I'm kind of trying to cling and say, hey, all this cool stuff is me and mine and all that kind of stuff. Let's just look at 
the broader picture. Learning how to be more emotionally open and, and flexible. All these terms require definition and clarity, but we'll start with words like emotion, cognition, etc., and we can unpack those. But learning how to be more emotionally open and flexible. Um, more cognitively uh, flexible and less sort of entangled uh, with the particular verbal rules and so forth, being able to sort of notice those. And then to come into a present moment, which is where we are all the time, but to allocate attention in a flexible, fluid, and voluntary way. And to do it from a sense of self as itself, not entangled with those things I just said. And... Uh, there it's a little harder, but I would just say from a more witnessing, noticing, observing, uh, perspective-taking uh, sense of self. And uh, based on, on that ground, which I think are pretty good definition of what mindfulness is about, if you wanted to use that term, being able to focus on the qualities of being and doing that you want to put in your behavior, what are your values, what, uh, and put goals harnessed to that as secondary but then arrange for the creation of behavioral habits that move you in the direction of those qualities of being and, and doing. If you want to simplify it, learning how to be more open, be more aware, be more actively engaged in a values-based life. If you want to simplify it further, learning how to be more psychologically flexible. And then you have to remember that this also, where social primates needs to be extended to your social relationships and communities, and you have a body that has to be taken care of. So uh, you need to be uh, focused all, also on your bodily well-being. What I just said explains 98% of the known mediators of psychological interventions. I haven't done it yet with medications, but where we looked at the entire world's literature of all psychological interventions ever tested in a randomized trial done properly with a proper mediational analysis that's been replicated at least once by the measures that are used. What I just said, 98% or really virtually 100%, you're down to you know fractional things, uh, can be explained by that. So I think our challenges in life and in culture and so forth is extending it, is, is learning how to be more open, we're actively engaged, socially extending and taking care of our body, using those processes, how to do that in a way, uh, you know, that um, over time facilit facilitates a life worth living. And psychedelics taps into that in some really interesting ways. If you look at the mediators of, of psychedelic assisted therapy, you know, there's things like oceanic awareness or things like that, but there's also change in values. There's a change in perspective. There's, you know, there's things in there that can be understood as this greater emotional cognitive openness, flexibility of being in the now from a different sense of self that is less bound up by judgment and uh, ego and stories told and narratives and all that. And it's more ground, grounded and simple awareness and being able to use that to create a life that's meaningful for you uh, and for those that you love. Uh, so I, I think we're on a journey as to how to do that, but we can take the science of psychological intervention and the mediators of it and bring it right up into the psychedelic assisted therapy and act as pretty useful as a 
as a ground for doing psychedelic assisted therapy since it lives inside these same processes that move uh, regardless of our ground to use when psychedelic assisted therapy works it it has changed processes that resonate with uh, with the act uh, perspective or the broader way i've just voiced it right now that's uh and that's, that's really oh, go ahead Sorry, well, i was just gonna say it's, it's really well explained and uh it makes a lot of sense and then i wanted to ask you matt you know like from the research and the trials and everything that you've carried carried out like what have been some of the the major changes that you've been able to to, to notice in people and and report on almost you know like what do they parallel with with what steve's saying here or are you finding finding any differences yeah very much so so the thing we can speak on with most confidence is in the clinical research or the therapeutic research and not all of the work um, others and myself have done are focused on treating a disorder but you know that sort of gets a lot of the uh, attention and it's it's super important you know to help help people so the the things we could speak with most confidence on are like yeah um you know, uh, I've done a lot of research helping people quit smoking. We've just wrapped up a, our first randomized trial with that using psilocybin to help people quit a tobacco addiction. So we've seen that they, you know, have really high rates of, of quitting tobacco. Um, and the current trial has looked at uh, compared to uh, nicotine patch treatment, which we know works, works better than placebo. Uh, but the backdrop to most... <laughs> virtually all of addictions treatment, there's a far more people that aren't helped. Even if you're successful, you know, six months after the quit date, you might have in a particular trial, 20% compared to 10% in a placebo condition that, Hey, you'd rather have your chances on the 20% than 10%, but the big elephant in the room is, you know, there's 80, 90% that aren't helped regardless of what group you're in. Um, so we're getting some really high success rates, substantially higher than um, traditional treatment. And then in other areas, uh, we're seeing a number of groups, including some work that I've conducted with colleagues, um, uh, showing improvements in major depressive disorder, um, uh, three randomized studies, including some work I've done with colleagues, seeing some substantial decreases in depression and anxiety in cancer patients who have any number of DSM disorders that are associated with either depressive and or anxiety symptoms. Um, there's nothing in the this DSM, the, the psychiatry uh, Bible, so to speak, um, yet perhaps that it says it's labeled existential distress. But this is essentially a phenomenon that we were uh, treating, which was one of the earlier um, focuses of uh, foci of, of, of psychedelic treatment with LSD back in the Back in the 60s, those were explicitly terminal patients in those older um, trials. But yeah, those are the, you know, so, and, you know, cancer-related distress, depression, um, addiction. I should mention the, the great work by my colleague, Michael Bogenschutz, again, picking up from those threads from the 60s, um, using um, psilocybin to treat alcohol use disorder. Um, and so he's uh, completed a... a, a relatively large uh, 90 some person uh, uh, randomized trial showing um, some pretty impressive results with decreases in drinking using psilocybin. And so um, 
Yeah, those are probably the, and if we want to include MDMA, which is another compound, not a pharmacologically, not a so-called classic psychedelic, but some substantial overlaps and you'll get differences in opinion about what, what you should call a psychedelic or not. I, I think it's fair to call it a psychedelic, not a classic psychedelic, but you know, this is all just nomenclature, whatever you want to consider it. It's very similar in terms of the way that it, the experiences people have some overlaps in the, in the pharmacology and certainly the treatment model of, you know, compared to most psychiatric medications where you, you take the substance on a regular basis to, you know, reduce symptoms. Um, it's, it's in the same sort of psychedelic therapy category of having one, two or three sessions, and then hopefully seeing long-term changes from that. So MDMA has shown incredible promise with PTSD treatment. And that's actually the most, um, uh, advanced in terms of the sense of, of potentially proving FDA, gaining FDA approval, we may be two phase three trials have been completed. So within the next year, we may, in fact, I would say probably we'll see FDA approval in the United States for using MDMA for treating PTSD. We'll have to see how FDA evaluates those data, which are all published at this point. But, um, you know, the big picture is that, you know, what's going on. So, Given this breadth of disorders that are treated, either I like to say you got to think something smells fishy here. Either this is snake oil. How does something work for everything? And certainly, it's not everything. It's not going to work for everything. But it is an astonishingly large number of supposedly separate disorders. Either it's snake oil, or there's something going on with you could call it transdiagnostic processes. There's some commonality between these disorder these disorders that are being, you know, moved by this psychedelic treatment. And I think you can express that in any number of ways, but it's all, it, it's what Stephen just described about how psychotherapy works, how psychotherapeutic change happens. And uh, I've written some commentaries and, and a number of, of, of others have written, the, have put it in different ways, but essentially that psychedelic therapy is psychotherapy. Yes, it's a medication. You're putting a very powerful biological, you know, a, a medication, a drug by definition has clearly very powerful acute effects in, in the nervous system. But the way it works long-term in terms of helping with these disorders, that's all, well, it's, <laughs> it's mediated biologically, of course, and psychology versus biology. These are just two different sides of the same coin. It's not one or the other. But the level of analysis that seems to be most applicable to understanding how this is working is because it's psychotherapeutic process, whether you're considering that or not. And we get into a very interesting discussion with the regulation because um, FDA is not charged and, and other like the European, uh, the EMA in Europe, similar FDA-like entities typically aren't charged with regulating psychotherapy. And the, some of the companies going forward sponsoring some of the phase three research they don't want to constrain their therapy to say, and I've been in some of these discussions. It's like, oh, if we have ACT or some other, you know, a variety of, of 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 whatever psychotherapy, cognitive behavioral therapy of one type or another, any, anything, um, you know, then you you you've introduced a hurdle for people to be trained in that and to have, you know, you can only use it under those conditions, perhaps if it's approved by FDA and. It's just this very weird zone that the FDA is not used to dealing with. And so I always remind people, like, whether you call it psychotherapy or not, or whether it's 
nominal psychotherapy or not. Some of these trials, like for example, tobacco addiction work that I've done, we use uh, some nominal CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. In other works, like the cancer work and the depression work that I've I've helped with, um, there's no nominal psychotherapy, but all of the so-called you know common factors of psychotherapy are clearly at play. There's a rapport established, which I think is important for safety between the therapists and the and and the and and the and the client, the patient. There's this trusting relationship. People have experiences. There's discussions about what's afterwards, what's how the people are interpreting, like what how they may you know change. Very sort of um, you know non-directive, but you know, you know reflective listening and all of these elements that you would hope would you know should be there with with any form of good therapy, that's all there. And so the way this works is psychotherapeutic process. And, you know, sometimes it's overstated and these are, you know, there's limitations in any description, but people will say this is like, you know, years of psychotherapy packed into one day. I mean, that's overstated since there is preparation and it's, it doesn't always work, but there is something to that, you know, there's no perfect way to state it, but it is like psychotherapeutic process when it works well under a magnifying glass on rocket boosters, whatever your, you know, analogy is it, when it works, it's because there's this rapid acceleration of, 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 of psychotherapeutic change. You know, people are more likely it's like the, the gain is turned up on the system where these sort of aha moments, moments of insight, people operating from a more, flexible framework. A lot of times when people say, whether it's addiction or other, how they're dealing with their cancer, like things they've told themselves a million times, like, oh yeah, I'm creating so much of my own suffering. I could choose to get out and enjoy life. The disease itself hasn't, you know, it's not impairing me to that degree yet that I can't go out and enjoy it. But, you know, the sun outside or my grandchildren, but I'm choosing to isolate myself and this type of thing, or, you know, addiction, like, you know, you know, I know what the, what I truly value, what the bigger priorities are. And, you know, I know this is killing me or this is sitting about it, all these things. But it seems when they come out of these sessions, when it really works, they feel these, <laughs> to speak loosely, because, you know, we're still in process of figuring out how this works, but they, it's like they feel it in their bones. <laughs> you know, they, they say, I've told myself this a million times, but now it's like, I get it. It really seems this is part of the ineffable thing. It's like they have this, realization that is just operating somehow that it's it, it, it's kind of sunk deeper and by analogy into their into the way they're operating it, it, it's sort of like at a more fundamental level psychologically now and um yeah it's it's fascinating you know i i think it would be important for us just in the world to allow some of the messages that are inside what's happening with psychedelic assisted therapy, but also in psychotherapy to penetrate into our cultural concepts because we're carrying around the burden of the idea that mental health is organized around disorders. They're latent diseases. If we just look close enough, we'll find the mechanistic etiology the course and the mechanisms that produced it and the response to treatment is the mechanisms that produce it. And then we'll have diseases. Yeah, but there's not a single psychiatric disease in 50 years, not one. And so 
you know, even the the feds and AMH are getting tired of it with what they did with RDOC, the research domain criteria, which, you know, was a good idea, but a finger was on the scale. Uh, the guy who came up with it, Tom's Insel, has now written an apology in this book, uh, Healing, uh, saying that it probably was a mistake, but it was a $20 billion mistake. And we can't afford that many expensive mistakes. The deep message that's inside here, it's not transdiagnostic really, because the whole idea of diagnostic is so tied to latent diseases that you have to set it aside. What we're talking about is how to empower human lives. And there's what cul-de-sacs, there's problems, it's trans-problematic, yeah. And these are complex problems that sometimes are clustered to a degree, but there's so much individual variation, major depression. There's thousands of different ways of combining just those limited sets of signs and symptoms and they are not reflecting an underlying disease state. There is no underlying disease. Sooner or later, I mean, 50 years and how many billions, eventually you say, this was a mistake. There's other ways of thinking about it. So let's think about it more as a developmental process that's complex and allow it to inform us so that there's a reason why the same basic underlying mechanisms are being seen when these things happen rocket booster status uh, uh, notwithstanding they are happening at light speed and that's in a way it's almost better because you can see the processes of change uh, that way and then by golly and we've done the research on this we've published some of these uh, studies where we then looked at okay what are the mechanisms and targets of positive psychology never mind diseases but we're just going to look at what people are doing to enhance human performance how about sports? How about running your business? How about stepping up to the challenges of physical disease, uh, et cetera? It's the same processes. So if we absorb that, then I think the regulatory mechanisms and the way that we've built our structures over the last hundred years really has to be challenged here. I'll take an example of smoking, which you mentioned. Uh, if you're going to apply antidepressants, let's be uh, uh, honest, is what you're doing there to stop smoking. The physicians, the flyer that physicians get says, you should apply this with behavioral counseling. And it'll give an 800 number to call. And all of the validating studies, all of them used that as part of the studies. We did an early study on, on smoking with ACT where we, as a test, eliminated even the social contact with the assessors to come in to do the, you know, the tests as to whether or not you had really quit smoking. We made it as asocial as we could, but we still gave the medications and the effect sizes were close to zero. It's never been done to just test. Well, in the case of psychedelics, it's been done. It was done in the 60s and 70s. Here's a chemical, take it, period, without preparation. I mean, I was in my social group, it was treated more sacramentally almost. We'd prepare, we'd think, we'd make sure somebody would be safe. You know, if the narcs showed up, you know, you wouldn't freak out, you know, that, you know, you would treat it as something that is a journey. And all the indigenous peoples do that. They all have a rationale. They all have preparation. They all have, have a post-dosing. And, and there's a conceptual system, you know, what to look for. You don't just go party, you know, and then 
you know, run out the door with, uh, you know, God knows how many doses in your in your body, some of which may be chemically laced with other things. I mean, that train wreck can happen in slow motion again. All you need is big pharma to say it's all the chemicals. Well, dude, if it's all the chemicals, how come you can't even show with these so-called disorders that it's all the chemicals? There's not one specific and sensitive biomarker for any DSM disorder, not one. And this is not me talking. This is the American Psychiatric Association DSM-5 work group. Go read the report on the creation of DSM-5. That's word for word what it says. So the regulatory environment in which, and this is really like wakes me up at night, would allow us as a result of this new chance to really dive into some of these deeper areas and have that rocker booster effect with proper guidance to come out with an end result that just says, yeah, big pharma, script it. And then when you, whatever you put in that physician's this guide will be ignored. When we looked at how many people got the 800 number, how many people called that, how many people even checked for, oh, by the way, there's known side effects. If you use that antidepressant to quit smoking, you shouldn't also have an eating disorder that can be life-threatening. You shouldn't. And we, we went into systems of care and people were on these drugs and still smoking and they had known uh, counterindications. <laughs> You know, it's not safe. And I think we need to say, okay, regulators, it's time to include these human change processes in how treatments are delivered. And if you don't know how to do that, we need to figure out how to do that. And then let's do the research on what's the best way to do orientation for a dosing let's say what's the best way to walk out and there and there will be better and worse ways of doing that and i'm pretty sure if we do that we're going to find some of these same processes of change that we know are helpful in psychotherapy are going to be helpful in setting up psychedelic assisted therapy doing it right carrying it forward making sure it has long-lasting effects and just throwing chemicals at people period end of story is a train wreck uh, waiting to happen again. We did it, and we've been doing it, and it it's not... It, it, if all of that was so great, how come our mental health problems are worse now than they were 20 years ago? Which they are. How come? We're, there's no indication we're doing a better job of mental health over time. And one out of four women are on antidepressants last year. You can catch fish in the... Biscayne Bay and a measurable amount of painkillers and antidepressants. I mean, how far are we going to take this insanity? You know, we're, we're so let's not let this chance for a reboot turn into that train wreck again. It, there's a deep message in how the how transdiagnostic, I think, transproblematic this is that needs to be taken seriously by our regulators and government agencies and by big pharma. We can have chemicals and medications be part of the solution, but not decontextualized. It's it, it seems like part of the systemic issue is that just you know the nature of what FDA does in terms of focusing on disorders, which of course most of which is outside of psychiatry, mental health. 
but you know i mean what you say makes complete you know sense in terms of what we're seeing with psychedelics um these are developed it's 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 almost like saying well why does you know good parenting decrease the likelihood of depression and you know a poor reaction to trauma and you you know doesn't it's like well it's like it's not it, it's a developmental it's part of proper human development and functioning it's not and so these problems are you know uh in different ways you know issues with you know kinks problems where we've people have had you know issues with that process so it's yeah I, it's a really really great point about even just the, the the wording of transdiagnostic problems like focuses on the negative rather than the proper human function because like yeah this continuum you know with positive psychology i, I mean mo the original work that i and colleagues did with psychedelics were all in you know healthy normals and it's all the same stuff. I mean, the same relationships we found there that the so-called mystical experience, which is highly correlated with what's called probably the same thing as oceanic boundlessness experience, but it's kind of very sort of transcendental, whatever word you want to use experience shows a relate on the session day, you know, by self-report that shows this relatively impressive correlate, not perfect by any means, but impressive correlation with whether it's healthy normals, um, you know, a couple months later is increase in, in personality, openness to experience or in patient populations, uh, decreases in anxiety or depression in cancer patients, or um, better able to deal with their, their tobacco addiction long-term. So uh, yeah, you, you know, it's, you know, it's completely consistent, you know, what, what we're seeing and, 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 oh, and I should say that, you know, one of the, th this kind of this artificial divide between the disorder and the health, healthy psychedelics, it's one of that distinction is one of the many things that really it's helped to hit home with me because I've been in as well as, you know, being a scientist and all the setting things up and analyzing, I've been in the sessions with, you know, dozens of, the, of you know, of, of sessions with people and uh, which is a very, you know, um, very kind of intimate, very like you see people, you know, crying, you know, everything, all the emotions. And it's, it doesn't matter what they're there for. I've even done work with them. Um, it hasn't been published yet, long-term meditators. So you might think at some level, oh, these people have done all their psych, taking care of their psychological baggage and they're going to be very high functioning in all the ways. And you, when someone's on a high dose of psilocybin, you see the same, you know, sort of all the same examples of human functioning, you know, uh, long-term meditator where the experience is about, oh, my, my older sibling was always the one that got all the attention and how that was such a, been an issue for me and i still think about that <laughs> you know um or you know you're there for it to just quit smoking but then you know i'm seeing this a couple of times some traumatic event from 30 years ago that you didn't really process i'm not talking about recovered memories or anything like that but something that someone remembers that was this you know horrible event that they've never really they've never seen a professional about they haven't really processed in any way it just sort of comes to the surface so to speak and that's you know that just it's 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 called to be dealt with by the person which is part of the gonna as this stuff goes mainstream gonna be the issue it's like you, you can't control like it's not like oh no that's not about quitting smoking it's like you're not supposed to have that experience like it does seem clinically like the the way you have to do this is just say whatever experience comes up during the session it a mindfulness type you know perspective of like observe it 
you know, go with it. Don't fight it. Surrender. We're going to keep you safe. But, you know, you've never had the wrong experience. You haven't messed up by focusing on this or that. Just kind of keep going with it. Surrender. Don't try to fight the experience. Very hard to operationalize. But um, but yeah, this this distinction between the normal and the abnormal is just it hits home that we're all human. <laughs> we all have issues. We all have this de- developmental trajectory where we have some, you know, a variety of issues along that path of, of, of our, of our life. And uh, yeah, I, I wonder with the easier said than done, but we need to rework the FDA from the ground up or just take the, take your mental health out of the FDA and have a psychologically based regulatory system. (laughs) I mean, they're on the medication side, they're medications. And so we, you know, there's, there's value in the government keeping the snake oil out of the system and, and making sure people aren't overdosed and all of that. But yeah, how is it, how are we going to go forward? It's a challenge. Yeah. I would like to see us rework uh, the diagnostic system uh, and make it far more etiographic and process oriented. But there's something I, I wanted to, to raise here that's in the the, the research with the psychedelics. Uh, kind of turn it to a, a direct direction. Is it okay? No. Um, one of the core uh, mediators of change, the one you mentioned, these mystical experiences, spiritual experiences, oceanic awareness, different ways of talking about it seem like they really focus, if you were to look at the things I was talking about earlier about psychological flexibility cast in a broader way can capture most of what we know about how psychotherapy makes a difference. There's this core one of sense of self. And I think you can see it developmentally, even in children where, you know, we're learning and and consciousness is in the sense of being able to respond to the regularities between yourself, the environment is going up. And then there's a kind of a break. And infantile amnesia settles in and and there's a different kind of creature. This young child somewhere around three or four is entering into a different way of thinking so thoroughly that even the things they were doing just a year earlier, singing Thomas the Tank Engine, I've seen it with my children, they can no longer sing those songs. It's like there's a, they've become different. And it's right on this issue of perspective taking and sense of self, of being able in a sense to step outside yourself, to look back at yourself. And it links to these ideas of time, place, and person, of I and you, I and you, here and there, now and then, uh, which we call in the underlying cognitive theory to, to act, relational frame theory, we call them dictic framing. When they come together into the I here and nowness of awareness, and you can imagine being anywhere on the planet, you can imagine what you will be like uh, as an old person, or you can put your, yourself behind the eyes of another and, and get a sense of what it's like to be in the Ukraine or be in Israel right now. Or That's a different kind of consciousness. And I think often we allow this sense of self to be dominated by these more, I'm like this and I'm good because of that, is more categorical cognitive things without digging down in the experience of awareness that is the sort of strand on which the beads of experience will be placed and allows you to have a kind of a 
a sense of, yeah, I'm the same person as I was when I was six, even though all your cells in your body are different right? and so forth. And that seems to happen at light speed with psychedelics, that people have a sense of uh, expansion across time, place, and person, as if this has has broken down in that oceanic awareness or mystical experience. If you unpack mystical spiritual experiences, they all seem to have that same shift of not just me but me you in a, in a kind of an organized system we're not just here but here there not just now but now and then expanding across time place and person and you know language like that is not evolutionarily recent i mean maybe the hominids were doing it maybe it's two million years old and three million years old could be five hundred thousand years old and, and it's harding, harnessing midbrain structures that are a thousand times older. I mean, operating classical conditioning is half a billion years old. All the creatures that evolved from the Cambrian forward half a billion years ago do operate in classical conditioning. So learning how, the kind of consciousness that means just learning how to na navigate our interaction with the environment changed. And it, it changed I think in this thing that we're doing right now, human language and cognition, and we see it. And the reason that seems important to me is that if if that's the if we know that that's the breaking point, when we take seriously these mediational studies of psychedelic assisted therapy, well, then it means that we really ought to be focusing more attention on how to expand people's sense of self even outside of psychedelic assisted therapy to be able to do things that we can see in psychedelic assisted therapy, like rapid progression. When I, when I just kind of open the gates and I'm able to be more present and I'm reminded just of the, some of the fMRI studies where it looks like this narrative sense of self is eliminating our access to sensory and sensory motor information. We literally don't know the world we're living in because we're living inside a story and we're telling that how great we are, how awful we are, how we were mistreated, how, you know, our, our brother got better treatment than we did, you know, like the example you're using. And then you remove those gatekeepers chemically and with the right orientation, you see yourself and your relation to the world in a different way. And that's profound, I think, and important and telling about the human experience. There's something really deep to be learned from psychedelics, in my opinion, theoretically, that applies to this moment right now, just between the three of us or others who will watch this. You know, it applies to us all, all the time. And it's buried in our usual sense of consciousness that doesn't allow us to see the centrality of sense of self to how we relate to ourselves in the world. Yeah, I... I... This is all fascinating, and it, it, I think about how perhaps what the psychedelics are able to do is something that the human animal has been doing for a long time, and there's certainly some evidence for this, whether it be through some crazy acoustical techniques uh, or going deep into caves or you know chanting and just the, all these various rituals to achieve what you call altered states of consciousness – we don't know how far back that goes back, but it may be that this sort of boundary dissolving, these types of techniques evolved with the human animal 
as a way to offset the the very necessary tool of that sense of self. But maybe that we only went forward because, you know, kind of like clothing, like it was advantageous to lose the hair to be more adaptive because then we could put on or off the whatever, the elk fur or whatever to keep ourselves warm. You know, just like, well, we somehow perhaps gained this sort of sense of self, which allowed us to do all of these wonderful things. But at the same time, we also needed perhaps these other rituals to, okay, how do you, you know, when the, when the, when the neighbor tri neighboring tribe is attacking, how do you get the, some of the men in the village to jump to the front and like give up their lives in defense of, you know, who's going to climb to the top of the, you know, electric pole to restore power and put their life at risk for the community who are, or, you know, sacrifice themselves for the, 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 the children in one way, shape or form, you know, these, I could imagine from a game theory perspective, I'm certainly not the first to say this, but you know, at the society, at the social level, at the group level, there's a selection factor. But and perhaps these experiences were part of that. And perhaps very speculative here, but the serotonin two-way receptor that mediates most of these psychedelic effects, it's the primary site of action. We don't know yet, but perhaps perhaps a lot of these other methods are activating that. We know that that receptor system is more pronounced in, in humans than they are other primates, more in primates than other mammals, et cetera. So perhaps psychedelics are one particular key to kind of like tap into something that has been important for human evolution um, that involves this at least temporary, you know, going beyond the self to, 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 to keep yourself... <laughs> To keep yourself and society, the culture, the the tribe, sane and functioning. Yeah, I I think, that, I think that's a really really cool thought, you know. And the the things that are most characteristic of human beings are, are cognition, uh, uh, culture, and cooperation. You know, we're the most cooperative of of the primates, and I think cooperation is likely what came first. It just makes more evolutionary sense for that to be. And even maybe our simplest terms, you know, or having a name for, you know, this is a cup, and then the bidirectionality that happens somewhere in stimulus equivalence, the term that's used in behavioral psychology, you know, around between 12 and 16 months, probably started in co cooperation, because if, if, if the, the troop uh, you know, just having characteristic sounds, for example, for objects that's common across uh, many form, uh, uh, form, uh, animals, non-human animals, and being able to res respond to sounds or signs or whatever and in characteristic ways is also common, but as an integrated system where if you learn it in one direction, you derive it in two, it looks like we're the only ones that really do that robustly. I mean, Bowker conditioning is there, but barely. And, you know, with with uh, 12 to 16 months, you know, you can with a few examples, it doesn't you don't just get it without any exposure to language. You have a new object, give it a name, take it away, say the name, the baby looks for the object. And you know, even a language trained chimps don't do that. That's been tested multiple times and zero. You know, they just don't do it. And don't write me about your dog and cat. I know your dog and cat is sm smart, but no, they don't do it. And. But the effect of that means that maybe even within the troop that we were able to say, like, call out for an apple and have a, you know, a, a, a member of the troop bring back an apple from across a ravine because that 
two-way street of cooperation means that I can maybe kind of get, and, and we can see this in, in infants even before they develop language, that there's a, a theory of mind, that there's an intention, that I want something. And uh, out of that, then troops form that would eventually you can internalize that within yourself and you can be a little speaker and listener and now you have a symbolic system. But with that, it's going to stick on you. With that, you're going to say, hey, I'm the better one. I'm the smarter one. I'm the whatever. Learning how to have that change in sense of self that is now a narrative sense of self not interfere with the cooperative basis of human communication period end of story is probably something i would think that you'd you'd want rituals and exercises when never mind psychedelics i mean it could be as you say you know just uh, fasting or chanting or breathing or uh to break it down enough that the I, you, we, they, the kind of relationships that are needed for cooperation are sustained because our success as a human species has been dependent on that. I mean, you put uh, an individual uh, human being out, out alone and uh, they're not going to survive very long until they've had a lot of socialization. I mean, we're, we take one of the longest periods of time where we're dependent on these giants around us called adults as babies you know just to feed us care us and and we're frankly not we're cute and it dump, you dump natural endorphins and in, in your brain when you see the cute eyes of babies but you know they poop on the floor they puke on you i mean who the hell would take care of these creatures so we've we've figured out a way i i, I think as as human beings to make this cooperative system work and then we've created a modern culture where it can really not work, where loneliness, disconnection, isolation is this characteristic. And even in big cities, you know, people are walking around feeling as though they're the only person on the planet. They're so alone. And, you know, what happens in the psychedelic stuff is it feels like somehow you're connected again. You're part of something bigger. You're part of a human community. And time, place, and person shifts. And there's it's massively empowering to people. So uh, sense of self. It's uh, something we really need to un figure out how to unpack. And I think the there's a there's a like a, a peek in, into the future from the psychedelic work that maybe we can expand expand on. That's uh beautifully said, Stephen. And now it sort of leads me into I wanted to end asking you guys about your thoughts on the future of psychedelic therapy. And the question that kind of jumped to mind whenever I was thinking about this was if you two could design a center that was to go into every town or city in the world, right? And the aim was to alleviate as much suffering in that town as possible and promote as much flourishing as possible. What would that center look like? Like what would kind of like the elements that you would include in that sort of thing? Think about like a post office or a Starbucks, or whatever. It's going to be in every town in the, in the world or every city. So who wants to go first here? Well, I'll, uh, you know, I'll, I'll take a stab at it. I sometimes think of psychedelic therapy, and we've touched upon this theme in different ways throughout this conversation, but it's sort of a Trojan horse. It's it's kind of the most interesting is, thing is not about the psychedelic therapy. It's just showing us things. Like I've said, it's kind of a way to bring psychology back into psychiatry. 
which psychology used to be the basis of psychiatry, but it's, you know, it's certainly not now. Um, or just in terms of human functioning or, you know, positive psychology, it's kind of, it's, and I think it's, it, it's, it's pointing towards the, the, the importance of what you could call it like healthy human development and a, you know, healthy, a healthy mental life. And so, so one of the things that I, 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 the directions I hope that it helps lead us to is the, the idea that um, we need, I mean, preventative healthcare really isn't the right, like, like way to say it, say it, given our discussion of it's really about human flourishing, but something like, I'm astonished by the idea that, you know, you're supposed to get a, a yearly physical and, you know, how how often you know you only treat the 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 so-called mental stuff when there's a problem right and we're get living in this in com increasingly complex insane world with you know you name it the media social media you know isolation um it, you know you have all of these issues with this issue for one person to have catastrophic effects on others like the whole um mass shooting phenomenon in schools the whole idea that we're not, we don't already have preventative mental health care, not once a year, but I'm thinking like once a month, like just to be a a, a, a human being in, in modern society. It's like, it seems to be, it would be worthwhile, like for it just to be considered uh, almost frowned upon to it. It's like, if you say you haven't been to the dentist in 30 years, it's like, if you, if you haven't, you know, had some type of a relationship with a mental health professional within the last year, be like, oh, what's you really need to get on that, even if you're health, you know, healthy. Um, I hope that this kind of the focus on the psychedelic therapy helps to bring this about more of this idea that the law of entropy plays out across all all aspects of the universe, including human fun, you know, you know, our physical body, our 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 mental health. Like we're going to go towards decay and disorder unless energy is put in to keep us integrated, you know, and fighting entropy. So, um, yeah, that we those clinics, I would think, wouldn't even be maybe every once in a blue moon, they'd involve a psychedelic, but it'd be where people would show up and they'd have a relationship and it would just be the daily check in. It's sort of like the idea of school counselors, which I wish they were utilized more like this. It's like. Not just when there's problems, like every student should have a relationship with their school counselor. And that way you're catching people long before they're having problems. But that should extend into all of all of life. I mean, I wouldn't want to force people into this, but I wish culture moved in a way that that was sort of the norm. And we kind of viewed it more as like, yeah, you need to be exercising. You need to be getting a physical. You need to be keeping yourself up because you're going to go to disorder unless you put some energy into into the system very cool thanks for sharing that matt steve what about yourself it, it's a really really cool question and i think if we could break out of the latent mental disease set into a mental resilience set how do we create modern minds for this modern world where we're going to be exposed to to judgment and pain and comparison, you know, these toxic processes that are hard for us all. 
with the computers we carry in our pockets, you know, our six-year-olds are exposed to it. They see more death and dying and distress, you know, than your grandfather did, and even unless they it was in a war, and even then more. And so we're, I, I think the way that we need to do it when we push the res, this reset button is get back to the individual and begin to look at longitudinally what are the processes of change that they're building. Because you can't do it in a top-down normative categorical concept. There is no one-size-fits-all. The deep message of the failure of the latent disease model is we need to go back to a more ideographic uh, focus and then build up into subgroups if and only if they increase the precision of our understanding of the individual. And processes of change can do that. That's, by the way, in the deep background of behavior analysis and behavioral thinking. It's was these principles were built on focusing on the individual organism and small end studies. If we go back to that and we start looking, okay, let's measure these processes of change. There's not so many. We can simplify it. I gave an earlier description, learning how to be more open, aware, and actively engaged, take care of your body, extend that to social groups. I can say it in a sentence. It's not that hard. I can ask questions or we can use wearables and so forth that look over time, how well are you doing with that? And treat you as a as a kind of complex evolving system, which is what you are. You're not in a normative category. And you can't even go from the stats that are normative to this because it violates a thing called the ergodic theorem. That's We haven't talked about it, but the, the statistics that tell people that you can go from bell curves to knowing the future of individuals are false. They're based on a, a mathematical error. So let's look at how change is happening in your life and then have kernels, techniques, methods that can target it. So that, let's say, example, I'm emotionally avoiding things. When painful emotions come up, I run away. You can get away with that for a little while, but you're not going to get away with it for very long. And boy, if you had to pick one toxic process of all of them out there, it's one of the worst. It correlates with almost everything bad. Okay, how would I learn to be more emotionally open? It's going to be one step at a time. It needs to be sensitive to context. But I could see already in your life, if I'm measuring it, uh, that you're headed in a direction where you're going to need that skill. And it's one of a small set of skills. I've president of a thing called the Institute for Better Health. It's a charitable organization. So I can say this without a conflict of interest at all. Um, I've developed an app called MindGrapher that does that. We collect high density longitudinal data, and then we analyze it one person at a time and tells you kind of what are the processes. It's not yet commercially available. And then it has it needs to be linked, I think, to apps and methods or your imagined clinic that would then focus in and target with kernels, not a whole big 20 session long psychotherapy thing, but kernels done repeatedly over time, like the dentist model. You know, here's how to clean between your teeth. Here's how to learn to become a little more emotionally open. Why? Because mental resilience in a modern mind in the modern world is what are we, what you need. And I've also developed an app for that as part of a larger group. It's commercial. I'll do a pause so you can eliminate this Nile if it's not right, but it's actually available called PsychFlex and MindGrapher plugs into it as well as being independently available. So I'm trying to answer your question through technology 
and empowering clinicians, which is what the app is for, to be able to give nudges and bumps based on what the processes of change show within the person's life over time. And that is a very different vision than these latent disease visions that you have something. It's more like you're doing things and there are many things and they fit together in a system. We can do a lot better than what we've been doing of this one size fits all vision. Instead, view it as an empowerment vision. And uh, I think we better because all of the indicators of mental and behavioral health are going in the wrong direction. And in very basic things like the several hundred percent increase in suicidality in preteen adolescence over the last three or four years, the need is so great that we, we either step up to it or we're going to suffer the consequences. And um, I, I think there's a hopeful vision in here and in this conversation. And I'd, if psychedelics can help advance that, boy, that would be awesome. Awesome, right? Well, that's a, that's a great note to to end on. And Steve, we'll definitely not cut the information about PsychFlex. We'll, we'll link to that in the show notes for that too. That's an incredible resource you've developed. Um, where can people find you two online after this after this uh, conversation? Matt? So probably the best place for me long-term would be uh, uh, Twitter, or I guess now X. That's where I'm probably post the most, uh, at drug underscore researcher. Great. And Steve? Best way to find me and connect into what I do is just stephenchayes.com. Click on yes, please send it to me. You go to my mailing list. I don't spam people. It's one click opt out if I ever do. And I'm, I send out newsletters and stuff every three or four weeks. Brilliant. Right. Well, it's been absolutely fascinating to explore this with you guys. And I want to wish you the best of luck going forward. Thank you for the opportunity. It's been awesome. My pleasure. Thanks, Matt, for the conversation. Likewise. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to hear the full version, you can do so with the Weekend University Premium Membership. This gets you access to our master library of over five years of psychology conferences, including over 230 talks and interviews with the world's leading psychologists, professors, and authors, unlimited CPD certification, transcripts, quizzes, premium passes for our annual conference, online courses with Richard Schwartz and Deb Dana, and more. The cost is £97 for one year, which breaks down at around 27p per day. The best bit is you can try it out for 30 days completely risk-free, as all orders come with a 100% money-back guarantee. If you're interested, please go to twumembers.com for more information.